So, um, we're continuing on our study uh, through uh, Matthew uh, 25. And really what happens, you remember the last uh, few weeks, um, there's, Jesus has been talking really um, in terms of parables. Um, he talked about the wise and foolish virgins and the parable of the talents. Um, but what's happening in this section is, although it's still partly a parable, um, in terms of the language of the sheep and the goats, the language is becoming much more realistic. Um, and so what is happening is we're getting more of a vision of things that are going to happen in the future, more of like an eschatological vision um, of the final judgment uh, when Jesus returns. It's a different kind of a language which is being used in this section. So obviously, there aren't going to be literally sheep and goats there. Um, so that part is um, parable language. But the actual reality that is being described here with Jesus returning is in realistic terms. But what I want to talk to you about just briefly by way of introduction is really this idea of judgment. Um, so judgment is something that we really struggle with, I think, in, in our society today. Um, there's several reasons for that. In fact, I think there are three main reasons for that. Um, but one of the issues is that we have um, the elevation of personal autonomy. Every person is a law to themselves. Um, you remember the, the poem um, called Invictus by William Ernest Henley. I think it's probably one of the most unchristian poems um, in, uh, that's been written. And he says, um, he says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And so because we believe that we are accountable to nobody apart from ourselves, judgment doesn't really resonate very well with us in our society. I think there are three specific reasons we really struggle with the idea of judgment. Reason number one is obviously there's a lack of consensus on any overarching truth that doesn't exist in our society. Everybody has got their own truth. So how can you judge if no one can agree on what the standards of judgment are? The second reason, I think, is that there's a lot of cynicism. There's a deep-seated cynicism about the moral authorities that exist in our society. So if you look at the government, do you think that MPs have a lot of uh, credibility when it comes to moral authority. Well, we think of the MPs' expenses scandal. Um, if you look at the established churches, um, you see that they've been rocked by child molestation. They've lost all of their moral authority. Um, so, so really, there's no one who seems to be in a position to be able to judge. There's no one who carries that kind of integrity. And the other thing that we've all heard about on uh, Facebook and, and so on is the proliferation of fake news. Um, fake news and media spin to the point that it's very hard to ever really see what people's motives are. Are they in the right? Are they in the wrong? It's very hard to know. But you know, ironically, there is still a lot of judgment in our society. Um, Facebook, I think, is a hall of judgment for many people. People are judged according to their appearance, their achievements, their holiday destinations, um, all these things. So Facebook is like a hall of judgment 
in our society. But there's just no concept of the fact that we are morally culpable and we are morally accountable to a holy God. That's the thing that's missing. But I just briefly, by way of introduction, want to, and it will come up on the screen behind me, um, but just say, why can God judge us? Why can Jesus judge us? Why is he in that position? Well, first of all, God self-defines morality. In a world where there's no truth, and, or there are hundreds of truths, God defines what morality really is. It says in Genesis, it says, Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So God is the only one who can define morality. He defines morality. He is that perfect standard. But also, secondly, he himself is a completely morally perfect being, particularly revealed in Jesus Christ. So when we look at all of the lack of credibility all around us, all the authorities, the moral authorities that people thought they could trust in years gone by, like the church, like the government, I don't know whether people ever really trusted the government, but maybe they did, um, um, but we find they lack credibility. But Jesus has complete credibility. Um, and it says we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize uh, with our weaknesses. He was in all ways tempted as we are, yet without sin. So because he is without sin, he is the only one who can judge. And thirdly, the third reason he can judge is because whilst there's so much fake news around and we can't really judge what's true and what's not, God has a perfect knowledge of all of our thoughts, motives, everything that's deep down within us that nobody else can see. And it says in Romans, in that day, God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So we're going to go on and look um, into the passage itself. Um, there's a lot here, um, but I'm taking a bit of a different tack. Last time I spoke, it was very, um, we talked a lot about eschatology and all the technicalities of that. Um, and I don't want to focus so much on that this morning. I just want to focus on some of the more practical implications. But suffice it to say, if you are interested, this does appear to be a different judgment um, from both the Bema seat judgment that is mentioned in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10 and from the great white throne judgment which is mentioned in Revelation 20. But I don't want to look at it from that angle so much this morning. I just want to focus on some of the realities, the overall realities that God would want to say to us. And the first thing I want to say to you, um, which is going to come up on the screen before me, the first thing I want to say to you is we've got basically four sobering realities, and then we've got four reasons for a joyous hope. Four sobering realities, and then four reasons for a joyous hope. But the first sobering reality is the sobering reality of the dual character of Jesus Christ. The dual character of Jesus Christ. When Jesus first came, he took a place of complete humility and lowliness. 
In fact, the Bible says in Psalm 22 and verse 6, it's saying that he, it says that he came as a worm. It says, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. Now, what can happen with worms? I don't know whether you ever did this um, as a child, but if you were of that kind of turn of mind, you can squash a worm, can't you, under your heel? Not a very nice thing to do, really. But you can kick or squash it um, and completely obliterate that worm in a second. You can trample it down. Now, some knowing looks of people who might have done that in the past. Um, but, you know, Jesus allowed himself to become a worm. I mean, in many ways, Jesus did allow himself we say it reverently, to become like a doormat, really. Um, He was um, trampled upon by men. He was despised and rejected of men. And he bled on the cross. He did all that for our sake to save us. That is how he came in his first coming. But you know, it's going to be very different, the Bible says, when Jesus comes a second time. And we see that in verse 31. It says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, He will stand on the throne of his glory. So the heavens are going to break. He's going to come attended, flanked by angels on both sides. And he's going to come in the splendor of his majesty. And he's going to sit as an authoritative ruler on a throne. And his word will be law. He will return really as a warrior king to completely annihilate his enemies. He will obliterate all his enemies. He will obliterate those Um, who have not accepted the kingship of Jesus Christ and have wanted to live their own lives as their own kings of of their own life. We don't only see it here, but we see it um, in 1 Thessalonians. It says here, and should come on the screen above me, it says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in Revelation 19, it says, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So that's a sobering reality, and we don't want to mince our words. That's what we believe. Just as much as we believe Jesus came the first time as the servant king, as the worm who was crushed on our behalf, he is going to return as a warrior king. He is going to return as a judge. So that's the first sobering reality. But the second sobering reality we see in verse 32, it says it's the sobering reality of universal judgment. Universal judgment. It says, All the nations will be gathered before him. All the nations will be gathered before him, everybody without exception. In his his first coming, people could reject Jesus. Indeed, many people did. And he was finally hung on a Roman cross as a criminal. It was perfectly fine to reject him, and he was rejected. It wasn't fine, but he was rejected. He was despised of men. But this time, everyone, all people everywhere will fall on their knees and they will pay homage to this king, Jesus Christ. There will be no choice in the matter. 
Um, you know, it's reminded of that hymn, you know, um, uh, not hymn, new song, and it says, Come now is the time to worship. It says, The greatest treasure remains for those, one day every tongue will confess you are God, one day every knee will bow. Still the greatest treasure remains for those who gladly choose you now. But one day every knee will bow, and they will be forced to bow. It says in Philippians, it says, That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So, it's an all-encompassing judgment, isn't it? Every people group, every tribe, every ethnicity, every, um, every, every socio-economic group, every tribe will be gathered before this throne. There will be no escape. None can escape his gaze. None can escape the piercing gaze of the Son of God when he returns in judgment. Now, the third thing is the sobering reality of separation. If we look at 32b, it says, He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He'll set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. So a great separation will occur. Now, <clears throat> it's interesting. I don't know whether you know anything about um, agricultural practices in the Middle East. Um, I can't say I did um, <laughs> before, I, before I looked at this. But basically, what would happen, the pastoral practice at the time was that um, during the day, um, the sheep and the goats um, would all be together, playing happily together. Um, and then um, at night time, they would be separated. Um, and the reason for that was that the sheep preferred the cooler air. They wanted to go to a place where there was cooler air. And um, the goats preferred the warmth of nestling together. There was something in them, something intrinsic within them, that they wanted to be in different places at night. And so there was this great separation. They were together. Everyone would have thought they were all just one uh, flock um, during the day. Um, but then at night time, there was this great separation that occurred. And Jesus is saying that that is going to happen to us. There's going to be a great separation, the daytime of life, the daytime of this age, but then at night there's going to be a great separation when the sheep are going to um, be separated from the goats. Now we don't entirely know in this life who the sheep and who the goats will be, um, but we do know that it will be revealed on that day um, that, that some will be sheep and some will be goats. Um, you know, lots of things divide people in this life. Like, you know, even, say, in our church, there are lots of things that divide us. You know, ages, where we come from, um, what race we are, um, you know, what we do for a job, um, what, what, what class we are, what, um, you know, all these different things divide us. There are lots of potential divisions. But there's only one thing that's going to matter on that day. None of anything else is going to matter. There's only one criterion that's going to matter on that day when Jesus returns in his glory. And that one thing that's going to matter is, did you know Jesus Christ? Did you know him? Nothing else will matter. No other criterion. Nothing else that you spent all your life working up will matter. Did you know Jesus? It's interesting, isn't it, in the parable of the wheat and the tares. Um, it says, you know, let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares, 
and then bind them into bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So the wheat and the tares grow together during life. The sheep and the goats are together. You can't distinguish. But the night time is coming, and when that happens, there will be a great separation. Um, Notice that the sheep are on the right side, and the right side in the Bible is the side of blessing and acceptance and favour. The left side is a bad omen. You don't want to be on the, on, on, the, uh, on, the, on, the, uh, on the left side, living in Bible times, because that might mean you're eventually for the chop. <laughs> um, it kind of indicates that you weren't in a good place. So you wanted to be on the right side. But finally, if we look at verses 41 and 46, um, we have finally the, the last sobering reality is we have the sobering reality of everlasting punishment. Everlasting punishment. You know, it says in in verse 41, it says that he will say to those on the left hand, depart from me. Now, if Jesus, if God is the source of everything that is good, of everything that is righteous and everything that is beautiful, what does being told to depart from Jesus mean? It means being consigned to abject darkness and pain. So he says to those people, depart from me. And not only does he say that, but he says that you're cursed. He says that a curse rests upon you. You're cursed. Because in their lifetime, they refused to come to Jesus, and we know Jesus became a curse for us. But because they refused Jesus, then they remain cursed for eternity a curse that will never be broken. And their destiny, it says in uh, verse uh, 46, well, and verse 40, their destiny is everlasting fire. Everlasting fire. It says, um, it says that the fire was, is such a fearful place, such an unspeakably horrible place that we can't, in our human minds, comprehend, and that it was never prepared for humanity in the first place. It was prepared for Satan and his angels. That's what the Bible says. Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So their place is everlasting fire. But because, although it was prepared originally for Satan, because those who have lived without reference to God, because they're in Satan's domain and they've allied himself to their kingdom, they will then face the same fate that Satan faces with his angels as well. But it's made, what is made clear here, what is made very clear, now there are various thoughts, even among evangelical Christians, to be honest, about this idea of the duration of eternal punishment. So some people, even to be honest, people like John Stott, if you know, have subscribed to a theory called annihilationism. So they didn't believe, although they believe that those who are, those who are, um, those who are unsaved um, will be punished, perhaps for a period of time, that they will eventually be extinguished, that their existence will be extinguished. And part of that argument is based um, on, on the word here, the Greek word, which is used for everlasting. Um, it's a word which means age or can be translated as age. Um, a word which is related to eon. And so they say, well, people will only be punished for an age, for a season, for a time. And then after that time, they will cease to exist. 
But I would just say two things to that. I don't agree with that, and I'd say two things. Um, that, yes, the punishment is age-long, but the age to come is an everlasting age. And so the punishment will be everlasting. One. Two, um, uh, the word used for everlasting punishment is the same word which is used of everlasting life. So if the punishment is not everlasting, then neither is the life. So the Bible seems to be clear, doesn't it? You know, no one rejoices in that. I, I, I've wrestled so much over these things. Um, and we say it with tears, knowing that people are, many people are headed for that eternity without Christ. And these are real things. This is what the Word of God teaches. Um, so we won't rejoice in that. And we know that God says that he does not delight. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but I'd rather that they turn and live. Um, but everlasting punishment is a reality that the Bible teaches. But, um, hallelujah, we're going to move on um, to, to our next point, really, the joyful hope. And it says the joyful hope of a chosen people. A chosen people. In verse 34, um, it says, Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father. You blessed of my father. So when we read this, one of the difficult things about this passage is is we kind of think that people are meriting their salvation through, through their works. But actually, what Jesus says here is it's the blessing of the Father. It's the fact that these people have been blessed by the Father, that they've been saved by grace, that they then demonstrate as the fruit of that these good works. So they're blessed of the Father. Um, we know that all the way we're saved is entirely of God's grace. It says in Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10, it says, For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for God, good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And the Bible says that those who have been blessed by the Father, those who have been uh, 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 you know, blessed by him, have actually been chosen um, before the foundation of the world. They've been chosen before the foundation of the world. It says in Ephesians 1 and verse 4, it says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So we've been blessed by the Father. We've been chosen before the foundation of the world for good works and saved by grace. But my next point is that not only are we a people who are chosen, hallelujah, but also... We have the joyful hope of a kingdom that's been prepared for us. Um, it says, um, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Inherit the kingdom that's prepared for you from the foundation of the world. We've been adopted into God's family, and, and he's going to one day call us home to be with him forever in a perfect place. And Jesus promises this as well, doesn't he? He says, in my father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and I'll receive you to myself, that where, you, that where I am, there you may be also. So we have a place prepared for us. We know what, how wonderful Jesus is. We know the glory of Jesus. And so the place that he's prepared for us is going to be a wonderful place indeed. And, and Paul talks about this. He says that our human minds, they can't even fathom 
the glory and the wonder of that place when we get to be to heaven with Jesus. It says, And eye has not seen, ear has not heard, what God nor has entered into the heart of man, the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Sometimes I think one of the reasons why we don't have too many details necessarily revealed specifically about what heaven will be like is just because it would blow our minds. It would blow our minds. We, we wouldn't be able to comprehend it. But we know that we have a wonderful hope because we have a wonderful saviour. And we know, and understanding, understanding what he's delivered us from, that he's delivered us from everlasting punishment and torment, that just increases our gratitude to him and for his mercy and for his grace. And, but now I want to talk to you briefly just about the very heart of the text. And I've entitled this next bit, The Joyful Hope of a Life Transformed. Now this is an area which is just a little bit difficult, I think, to understand at first sight, but it's very important that we just unpack this. And this is really where the application is going to come from. So it's the heart of the text, verses 35 um, to 40. So Jesus then really goes on. He speaks about the criterion that are going to be used in this great judgment. He speaks about the things that people are going to be judged by. And quite Alarmingly, in some ways, quite concerningly and worryingly, he points to these very practical acts of compassion that people are going to be judged by on that day. He talks about things like feeding the hungry, welcoming the stranger, clothing the naked, and visiting people who are imprisoned. Now, in the Middle East at that time, all of these things would have had a particular resonance for them because it was quite a in some ways, primitive society. It wasn't as developed as, as, as with. There was no social security system, for example. So in Israel at that time, if you weren't fed, there'd be no government giving you money. You may have starved. Um, if, um, you know, if you wanted to visit an unfamiliar place, you couldn't just book into a travel lodge or a premier inn, something like that. Um, <laughs> You, you could easily have been left out on the town square. In fact, I think there's somewhere in the Old Testament, it says about someone who wanted to visit someone and they were left on the town square. So, so you really needed to know someone. You needed hospitality, practical hospitality in those days. And also visiting the sick in those days. There were some very highly contagious and virulent diseases. And to visit the sick was a very, very risky thing to do. You may well be infected yourself with a deadly disease. Um, in the early church, there were a group of men and women, and they were called the gamblers. And they took it upon themselves to visit those with highly contagious and infected diseases, knowing that they themselves may well contract the illness and possibly and die, but they were willing to hazard their lives for the sake of ministering to people. So the gamblers. And in recent times, we can think about those, I mean, some of them believers, some not, but who have flown out to areas like... Um, uh, it, was, it was Libya, wasn't it, with, with the, the Ebola epidemic? And there was a very strong likelihood that they may contract Ebola themselves. And many of them did contract Ebola. Many of them ended up in intensive care units, um, um, not knowing if they would really make it or not. So there was a risk associated with it in those days. And, and think about prisons in that time as well. They were extremely grim places. Um, we are beneficiaries in this country of having a long heritage of prison reform. People like John Howard, um, he was a figure in the 19th century and uh, he, he kind of did a lot of penal reform um, and there were other figures as well and they made our prisons very humane places. 
But in Bible times, if you were a prisoner, you were basically subhuman. You weren't considered a human being anymore. Um, and few would want to visit them because few would want to have their reputation tarnished with the shame that would be associated with visiting people who were in prison. So all these things that are described here, they're highly costly and highly practical and highly sacrificial acts of service, practical things that people do. But how do we square that? We are, after all, evangelical Christians, and one of the core facets of our belief, really, is that we believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, faith alone, in Christ alone. And that was really the battle cry, wasn't it, of the Reformation. So how does this fit in with it? You know, how, 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 you know, how can we say, well, Jesus seems to be judging people here on the basis of their works, um, but on the other hand, we're saved by faith alone. You know, how does, how does that really work? Well, there are quite a few, interesting, there are quite a few scriptures in the New Testament that teach that although we're saved by grace, there is a sense in which we are also judged by our works. Um, if you look on the screen behind me at Matthew 16 and verse 27, it says, The Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. If you look at Romans, the book of Romans, so no book is, is, talks more about um, salvation by faith and through grace in the book of Romans, but what does it say in Romans chapter 2? It says, God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. And then it goes on to say, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honour and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil. So there is this reality that although we're saved by grace, we are partly, well, we are judged by the evidence of that faith. If you look in James chapter 2, it talks about this whole works and faith thing. It says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. So yes, it's faith alone that saves us, but faith that saves is never alone. It's always accompanied by works. And in this judgment, people are being judged on the evidence of the fact that they have a real relationship with Jesus Christ. And the evidence of that relationship is acts of practical service. If that evidence is not present in our lives, that should cause us to have serious concerns that we may not be in a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, and John, uh, the, the John, talks about, um, John talks about this. How do we know that we've got new life? After all, that's what being a Christian is. It's about having a new supernatural life. It's about having the life of God implanted in us. How do we know that we are dead and not alive? In 1 John it says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. So, 
Uh, going back to verse 40, <clears throat> there are two interpretations of who Jesus is talking about. You know when Jesus says, whatever you did to the least of these, my brethren, there are two interpretations of that. Some people think that the least of his uh, uh, brethren is just anybody who is lowly, anybody who is in need. Other people would say that Jesus' brethren refers specifically to other followers of Jesus. Now there's truth in both of them. I think the primary sense is Jesus is talking about other followers of Jesus because often in the Gospels, Jesus talks about his disciples as being his brothers. But of course, there is a sense in which as believers, the love of God overflows out of us to all. So this specific thing is that we need to make Christians, other Christians, our first priority when we're carrying out these acts of service to mankind. Galatians sums it up nicely. It says, let us do good to all but especially to those who are of the household of faith. So I just want to talk to you very briefly, three practical considerations um, about this whole issue of, of loving other Christians. Three very practical considerations. They're all very simple, um, but, but, but um, I think it's just worth remembering this. So, so point A is, do we realise the reality of the fact that concrete acts are the measure of how much we love people and not just loving sounding words. Concrete acts. That was the criterion here. It's nice to be nice to people. <laughs> it's nice to um, be affectionate to people and be nice to them. Um, but some of that is, to be honest, determined just by our demeanour or our, our manner. But what really counts, Jesus says, is concrete acts. Everything done in these verses is intensively practical. They're all intensely practical things that you know this person has done this for me. I'm really encouraged by our church because I've known lots of uh, occasions when people have recently um, given birth or when people have been sick and this church has gathered round and they have provided meals for them and dropped them in. And that is a tangible, um, a tangible manifestation of the love of God. And so I want to encourage you in that, but I also want to say, let's be praying that our love would abound more and more. Let's pray that it won't just start there and stop there, but it would abound more and more, the love of God. And secondly, do we realise the cost of demonstrating our love in these concrete acts? Do we realise there's a cost involved? You know, we sung in that song, and it was so appropriate this morning. It's funny, you know, when you're preaching sometimes, the way that, you know, the Holy Spirit just seems to kind of pick particular songs. I do believe that he does that. And he says, you know, this is how we know how love works, that he, you know, that he surrendered his all. He gave up his life. Because it's impossible to love without there being at least an element of death to us, without there being at least an element of self-sacrifice. It's impossible for that to happen. Um, you know, it says in 1 John 3 and verse 16, it says, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So, you know, we, can, we think of the gamblers in the early church, those who visited those who had the infectious, infectious diseases. I mean, they literally risked everything to be able to show the love of Christ. If they hadn't done that, if someone hadn't done that, then those people would never have known that God loved them. Um, so we have to be willing to, to actually surrender everything in some cases. Now, and... Even smaller acts, you know, even the act of just having someone round for a meal, even um, uh, the act of giving some money, there's always a cost to it. You know, 
we might think, oh, I could have just done with some me time today. I'm tired, I've had a long week at work, you know, um, GP, patients have been driving me a bit mad, and you know, all that kind of stuff, and I just need some me time now. I just want to like, put my feet up, and I'd probably relax by reading theology or something, so I'm quite sad. <laughs> but, but you know, but there's always a cost. So even in small things, like you know, having someone around for a meal, there's always a cost, isn't there? There's a small cost. And, um, you know, or money that we give to help people. We think, I could have done with that money to have a nice weekend away, you know, weekend spa or something. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there's always, there's always a sacrifice. There's always a cost. It's impossible. It's intrinsic to the nature of what love is, um, that there's always a cost. I would say we have to be wise. I mean, does that mean that we should necessarily do everything um, and, and pour ourselves out to the point where, you know, that's not true. I mean, God is often calling us to do specific things. So there's no limit to the degree to which God may call us, call us to pour ourselves out for someone, because that is his Calvary love. But he's not necessarily telling us to do that to every need. So we have to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, and he will call us to specific needs. But we have to realise that in certain circumstances, it may cost us everything. It may cost us everything. It may not. It depends what God is um, calling us to. But certainly we should be willing for it to cost us everything. And if we're not willing to pour out everything, then maybe we need to go back to the cross. Maybe we need to ponder again, what did it cost Jesus? The Apostle Paul says that I am, I am, uh, you know, I'm, <clears throat> I'm glad to spend and to be spent for your sake. So that degree that we're willing to pour ourselves out entirely um, for God and for others. But this is a third point, and I think this is, when I was preparing, this, this was the real thing that I felt that God wanted me to um, emphasize. You know, do we realize that all believers, the entire church of God, are our family? You know, and this is really something about the scope or the breadth of the love that we demonstrate. Because so often in our lives, we think we're being loving when we're kind to our which we are in a way, being kind to our immediate family or our immediate friends or people who we get on with. And obviously it's right that we're kind to our family and friends, but it mustn't stop there. Because the reality is, is that we're all family in a deep way, in a profound way. We are as much family as biologically, really. And in eternity, we will certainly be so. So we mustn't neglect, obviously, the, the responsibilities God's given us towards those who are close to us. Um, but also, we need to have a broader vision. Because Jesus said, this is interesting, in Luke 8, um, Jesus said, Then his mothers and brothers came to him, and they could not approach him because of the crowd. And it was told him by some who said, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So Jesus is saying, look, your family have come, you know, your parents, your brothers, you know, aren't you kind of pleased to see them? And I'm sure Jesus was. But he says, at a more profound level, my family are those who hear and keep the word of God. So we need to, we need to broaden our scope of interest beyond our own uh, immediate family, beyond our own immediate friends. Because actually, Jesus says, although they're good things to do to love our family and friends, they are within the scope of what's normal. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your 
Father in heaven is perfect. So we need to move from the natural, from having a natural love for those who are near and dear to us, to having a supernatural love, which overflows to the entire body of Christ. First of all, to our own local church family, and then beyond that, to the church of God, the church of Christ globally. I heard some stories about, um, about the persecuted church. Um, there was a story of a minister in Egypt, and on one day he was bombed, and the blood of his child um, spattered up across his, his clothing. Um, and the next day, he continued to minister um, in, the, in the house of God and in the word of God, and he continued um, to pray, and he continued to sing um, songs and to worship the Lord. He just continued and these are the kind of people, do we have any sense that people like our, that are our family, that we are connected to them in a deep sense? just want to share with you um, <clears throat> a few statistics about the persecuted church. Um, first of all, thinking about Iraq. Iraq, um, in the, it says in the land of Eden, uh, in the land of Eden, Jonah and Daniel, that is Iraq, it says um, the number of Christians has shrunk from 1.5 million to 300,000. 1.5 million to 300,000. What happened to all the other Christians? Um, in Syria, it says only 1% of Syrian refugees in camps will admit to being Christians because they fear negative repercussions from sunny refugees identifying them with the regime. So if you're a Syrian refugee, only 1% of them will admit to being Christians because they're so scared about what will happen. In India, there's been a radical nationalist movement which has led to brutal attacks on Christians. In Pakistan, Christians face mob violence because of the blasphemy laws there. In Sudan, Christians face the death sentence for apostasy. In Nigeria, hundreds of thousands of Christians are facing massacre by the radical Islamic group Boko Haram. In North Korea, tens of thousands of Christians are enslaved in labor camps for their faith. But if we have a sense that our family, they're our family, what are we doing to help them? What are we doing to help them? So we're drawing towards an end now. Um, I just want to talk my last final hope of, uh, my last final point, um, the, the joyful hope of life everlasting. It says in verse 46, it says, these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. So the wicked are going to go into this place of everlasting pun punishment, a place where the Bible says that there's gnashing of teeth, where the worm never dies, but the righteous, those who are declared righteous in Christ and those who demonstrate the fruits of righteousness practically, they're going to go into everlasting life. Now the reality is, is that the everlasting life doesn't start when we get to heaven. It doesn't start when we die or when Jesus comes again. It's a quality of life that starts now. It's that supernatural life that we're living in now. And it starts now. And that life is just a continuation. And after we die and we pass on from this world, it will blossom and it will flourish um, into the fullness of the life that we already enjoy. So we already enjoy that life now, but it's, we look forward to that life continuing forever, and we look forward to it blossoming and flourishing in perfect, life, in perfect love in the kingdom to come. So, so that's really what I've got to say. We know, we've, seen that, we've seen that judgment is a reality. It's something that's very incongruous for the time in which we live. Um, but there is an objective truth, and there is a God who will judge according to that truth. A king is coming, and his name is Jesus, and he, will, he has impeccable credentials, and he will judge, um, and his word will be final. We've seen four sobering realities. 
We've seen the dual character of Jesus Christ. We've seen the reality of a judgment which is universal. We've seen the realities of separation and the realities of everlasting punishment. And we've seen four grounds for joyful hope. Those who know Jesus can rejoice in the fact that they are a chosen people, that they are anticipating a kingdom which is prepared for them, and they can enjoy the dynamic of a new life, a life which is transformed into a life of active compassion. But the big, the big question I want to leave you with this morning is, do you see evidence of God's grace in your life? Do you see evidence of God's grace in your life? Are you demonstrating active compassion towards the body of Christ? Even when it hurts you, even when it costs you, are you doing that? Are we devoting ourselves to hospitality? It talks in the Bible about those who devoted themselves to hospitality. Is hospitality something that features in your life? Um, in other words, do we think that we're alive spiritually, but actually we're abiding in death? That's what John says. If we don't love our brother, we're abiding in death. And if we don't see any active compassion, if we don't see that in our lives, we then need to go through a process where we need to ask ourselves why. It says in 2 Corinthians, it says, examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? So if there's really no love in my life, if there's no love at all there, I mean, we're all, it's all kind of clouded, we all have mixed motives, but if there's nothing at all there, if there's no love at all, if there's no compassion at all for anyone, um, then I think we need to get down on our knees and uh, we need to just do some business with Jesus. And we just need to, we just need to, we need to just pray that, um, call upon the name of the Lord and he will save us if we're not saved. If we've never truly met, if we've never had that transition, if we realise that that life is not abiding in us, that supernatural life, then we need to ask Jesus to save us. We need to call on the name of the Lord and we will be saved. But if for most of us here, if you are a Christian and you realise that love is there, but it's just limited, it's just stifled, it's just held back, then we need to pray that that love would grow more and more, that it would abound in knowledge and in all discernment, as Paul prayed. We need to pray for an increase in that love. We need to pray that that love which is within us will increase, that it will grow up from being a spring to being a river of water, that it will well up and reach all those around us. So what things do you need to do? Start praying for someone in this church. Start praying for a believer who is struggling or someone who is in some kind of need. Start praying for them this week. As you pray for them, the Holy Spirit is going to knit your heart to that person and he's going to direct you to them. So start doing that this week. Invite someone from church that you think might need encouragement. Invite them around for coffee or for a meal. Choose someone, when you do that, who needs it for their benefit rather than just because you want to hang out with someone who's quite cool. Do that. Um, prayerfully consider, and I'm not saying this is not just a shameless plug, but prayerfully consider if God is calling you to sign up for one of the ministries at church to help support your church family. There's a particular need for children's workers, there's a need for ushers, there's a need for others. Prayerfully consider that. I don't want to tell you what to do. I'm not the Holy Spirit, but just see what the Lord wants you to do. Um, and also seek God about broader ministries um, that minister to the body of Christ. 
So there are prison ministries. There are some fantastic organizations that do minister to the persecuted church. Barnabas Fund, Open Doors and others. Pray, seek the Lord. Should you partner with them? Should you give money to them? Um, Should you um, show some interest in them? Think specifically, is God calling you to develop a heart to specifically minister to the sick or the housebound? Um, There are brothers and sisters, particularly those who are older, and by reason of age they are unable to to, to meet with us, and those who are sick. um, And, you know, instead of people coming to the church, why don't we bring the church to them? Why don't we bring the church to them? Why don't we bring the love of God to them? So if that's something you want to do, we need to um, think about who those people are and when that need arises. And I would encourage you to pray about getting involved in that ministry. So I can't tell you what to do this morning. I can only tell you what God says in his word. Um, And what God says in his word, I'm just going to leave you with those, those penetrating words, those final words of Jesus. And he said, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me.